We've slowed down as we've come into this section on discipleship in the Gospel of Mark. And this morning, we're only going to cover three verses in Mark's Gospel. I think that's the least amount of verses we've had so far in our study of this tremendous account, historical record, of the most important person who has ever lived. And as we consider his words this morning, I want you to think about what R.C. Sproul said when he was teaching on these verses. He called Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37, one of the most profound texts in all of Scripture. And he said it would take many weeks to expound on everything that is touched upon here. And I hope to do so in one week. And I've got less notes than usual, so we'll see if I can end early today. But then you'll know that I haven't touched on everything that is here. You see, these three verses in Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37, are vitally connected to the most important prophecy concerning Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Now, there'd be a lot of arguments as to how do you determine which is the most important prophecy of Christ in the Hebrew Scriptures. Well, this one has a good argument for it because Psalm 110 verse 1 is quoted or alluded to more than any other Old Testament passage in the New Testament Scriptures. And you'll see just how significant and important it is as we go along and look at this profound text, as R.C. Sproul called it. So to give you a little bit of context of where we are in the Gospel of Mark, remember that Jesus Christ has arrived in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and that he's taken up residence as a teacher within the temple courts. And as he's been teaching the people in the temple courts, all of those who are threatened by his person and his public ministry have been coming to Jesus with trap questions where they're hoping to be able to get him in trouble with the authorities or to diminish his prestige among the people. One way or another, they're trying to get rid of the threat. And Jesus has been too cunning for his enemies. He's been able to disarm all of their traps and to walk through unscathed. And so I like what one commentator said about this passage. After a day of questions comes the question of the day. So they've all been asking him questions. Now it's time for him to ask them his question. And so Jesus says, well, I have a question for you. You've all given me your questions. Here's the question that I want you to think about. That is a great introduction right there. That's got to get you thinking. And when Jesus spoke to the people and he had one question for them, what question would Jesus ask us to think about when it comes to teaching God's word? Having halted their offensive, Jesus is now ready to mount his counterattack and to put them on the defensive. He's going to put them on the defensive this week and next week with his counterattack. As another writer said, Jesus has bested the field and the debate is closed. Jesus, however, does not quit the field, but he takes it. And so he has bested everyone and now he has the field to do what he wants with it. Let's go ahead and turn then and look together at Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. Our title this morning is David's Greater Son. Follow along in your Bibles as I read it out loud for the congregation. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself 
calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Here you see the question. How can the scribes say that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David? So we'll take a look at this in these four parts of our outline this morning. When we're looking at this passage, we're not just going to deal with one specific context and one specific question, but we're going to see the way that Jesus frames the question, we get great insight into the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. So this is an excellent passage to demonstrate and show that Jesus believed in the inspiration of Scripture. This is not an invention of the church, but this is something that we have learned from Jesus Christ and was, in fact, what the Old Testament scriptures posited, the inspiration of scripture. And then secondly, we're going to see that Messiah is the son of David. You see, when Jesus asked the question, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David, we're going to make it clear that he's not denying the truth that the Messiah, the Christ, is the son of David, but that's not all there is to the truth about Messiah. And he wants to open their minds to be able to understand something that had not yet dawned upon their consciousness. And so we're going to see that Jesus is going to prove from his quotation from the Psalms, the book of David, that Messiah is in fact David's Lord. And then we'll see the response of the hearers in verse 37, the end of that verse. All right, so Let's go ahead and take a look at the first point on our outline, the inspiration of Scripture. And I want you to look in the text there in verse 36, the first part of the verse, where Jesus says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. So this gives us the doctrine of inspiration in the words of Jesus Christ. That he says when it comes to the writing of the Bible, that the human author is in fact writing and speaking but he is doing so in the Holy Spirit. So it's not David alone. It's not a mere man who is writing these words, but he is in the Holy Spirit when he is doing so. And because of that, what is being communicated is not just the words of David, but that David is functioning as a prophet. We had this in our scripture reading in Acts chapter 2 that the Apostle Peter identified David as a prophet. And what is a prophet? Well, a prophet is someone who speaks God's word. So Jesus assumes the doctrine of inspiration. There's also a couple of other assumptions that are here that I want to analyze before we get into Jesus' argument. Jesus' argument rests upon two assumptions, not just the inspiration of Scripture, but two others, that are denied by most Old Testament scholars today. And scholars are often hostile towards the Scripture. So Jesus here is assuming two things that are denied by Old Testament scholars. If you go down to the University of Nebraska, and they've got a, a department of ancient history or ancient literature, and if they've got someone there that is teaching a class on the Old Testament as literature, as I took that class when I was in college at UNL, the assumptions that Jesus makes here would not be believed by the professors at the university, nor the theologians at places like Harvard and Yale, and sadly, even in a lot of evangelical colleges and seminaries, the assumptions that Jesus makes here would not be believed by the chair of theology 
in a lot of what you would consider to be conservative Christian evangelical schools. What assumptions are those? Number one, he says David himself declared. Now, as far as the liberal theologians go, they have for a long time denied that Psalm 110 is actually written by David. Now, when we go back and look at Psalm 110 in a moment, you'll notice that it is one of the Psalms that says it is of David. And so the way that Jesus understood that and the way that the Jewish people understood that for centuries was that that meant that David was the author. However, liberal theologians came along and said, well, of David just means that it's about the Davidic monarchy and it's about Davidic themes, but it's not a psalm that was written by David. In fact, the liberal theologians said that Psalm 110 wasn't even written until the Hasmonean period in the intertestamental time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Hasmonean kingdom was what came to rule Israel when they had successfully rebelled in the Maccabean revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes and his desire to squelch Judaism and its religion as part of the Greek rule after Alexander the Great. And the Hasmoneans ruled between 140 B.C. and 37 B.C., about 100 years there. And so they thought that that intertestamental period is probably when Psalm 110 was written according to their humanistic rationalizations. But among the important finds in Qumran, where we discovered what is known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, is a complete book of Psalms that dates, according to the handwriting style and the materials that it's produced upon, the archaeological evidence, to about the 3rd century B.C., well before the Hasmonean period. And so all of these scholars who had said, oh, Psalm 110 is from the Hasmonean period, now have new evidence that shows them to be completely wrong. And so, of course, they have to adjust their theories, their human rationalizations. And so most Old Testament scholars today, in light of the Dead Sea Scrolls, would now date the 110th Psalm to sometime in the late kingdom of Judah, an anonymous writer writing an enthronement psalm as a new king would take the throne in ancient Judah. And so they don't think that David himself is the one who is declaring it, and they don't think that he is writing about the Messiah. Notice that Jesus says, David himself, in verse 37, calls him Lord. Him referring to who? The Christ. Jesus questioned, how can the scribes say the Christ is the son of David? David calls the Christ Lord. Now, the liberal critics, and sadly many conservative theologians also, would say David didn't actually write it, and he wasn't actually writing about the Christ, the Messiah, but instead he was just talking about the next king that would be ruling over Israel, and that it's language that could be used in the ancient context, and then the Jews in the time of Jesus just took that ancient language and applied it to Messiah, but that wasn't its original meaning or its original intention. Jesus says no. Jesus says that David wrote it and that David was a prophet and that he was speaking about the Messiah. And so you have to make your choice. Are you going to believe what the humanist rationalist scholars believe or are you going to believe what Jesus believed? And I think that's a pretty easy choice. Let's go ahead and go back and read Psalm 110. So keep your marker there in Mark chapter 12. The 110th Psalm, as I said, is the most quoted, most referenced Psalm 
one of the most important prophetic texts in all of Scripture, and therefore it is no surprise that the unbelieving scholars, who are in fact influenced by the master of deception himself, take special aim at undermining Jesus' assumptions here about Psalm 110. If they can discredit Jesus' proof from Psalm 110, then they've gone a long way to eliminating the evidence that Jesus Christ is in fact Lord of all, which is sadly the motivation of the unbelieving heart. Let's read Psalm 110. It's not a long one. I'll read all seven verses for you. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's the part that Jesus quotes. But then it goes on. The Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's also a key verse here. Keep verse 1 and verse 4 in mind as we continue. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shudder kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Fascinating psalm. And verse 1 is what Jesus is using for his question. Now, when you have to choose between believing what Jesus says about this psalm versus believing what the humanists say about this psalm, notice verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Why is that important here? Well, I point this out because the kings of Judah in the Old Testament history were not priests. They were not allowed to be priests. They were not allowed to function as priests, but that God was very specific to separate the monarchy from the priesthood. And yet in this psalm, you've got the monarch, the Messiah, the king, also functioning as a priest after a new order, a different order than what God had established in the Old Testament, which is the order of Aaron. Go back and study the Old Testament law, and God appointed the Levites as the priests in Israel with Aaron as the high priest, and that was the descent, that was the Aaronic priesthood. But here, we have a different priesthood. I'd like to remind you what God did in the Old Testament for kings who decided that they wanted to function as priests. Second Chronicles chapter 26, verses 16 through 21. I don't have the whole passage here, just a couple of verses, where you've got King Uzziah desiring to burn incense to the Lord, and he is rebuked by the prophet for trying to step into the role that God had ordained for the priests. And so the prophet said to the king, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you have been untrue and will have no honor from the Lord God. So, if this psalm was not by David, but it was just by some anonymous psalmist who was writing an enthronement psalm for one of the Davidic kings like Uzziah, 
then you could forgive Uzziah for thinking that he could step in and burn incense on the altar because God had told him that he's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so demonstrating this verse is not written to the Old Testament kings, but it is in fact of David writing about the Messiah, the one who is going to be king forever according to the promise that God had revealed to David. The prophet had come to David and had told him that God was going to give him an heir, a special seed who would rule over the kingdom forever. And David, in the spirit, wrote Psalm 110 as a prophecy of the Messiah, the ultimate king of Israel. Not Uzziah or any of the other Judean kings, but the Messiah himself. And this is how the psalm was interpreted correctly by the Jewish people in the day of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus knows that the scribes teach that the son of David is the Messiah. The Messiah that they were waiting for would be descendant from David in accordance with God's promises in the Davidic covenant. Now, a few other verses on inspiration before we move on. David is speaking in the Spirit. And so I wanted to remind you of how prophecy functions, how a prophet works. The prophet speaking in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 2, said, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. So a prophet did not speak from himself, but he spoke from the Lord, from the Holy Spirit. And so the prophets arrived and said, Thus says the Lord. It wasn't a message they invented. It wasn't a message they made up. It was a message that God gave them and put in their mouth. God's words in the human mouth, that is the spirit of genuine prophecy. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. So the Old Testament claimed inspiration, just like the New Covenant, the New Testament writings also teach the doctrine of inspiration in the same way. Look at the way Peter describes it. He says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So David, in the Holy Spirit, he's being carried along so that he can speak a prophecy about the Christ from God. That is interpreting the Bible according to its own worldview, according to its own presuppositions. The humanist gets in trouble when he tries to interpret the Bible according to the presuppositions of secular humanism. And so he ends up undermining the very basis of Jesus' argument in what is the most profound and a most important text concerning the very identity of Christ himself. You see how important the doctrine of inspiration is. You get rid of the doctrine of inspiration and now you've undermined the argument for the deity of Jesus Christ that he gives here in Mark chapter 12. You can't just separate one doctrine and say, well, that doctrine's not important as long as you believe in Jesus. How can you believe in Jesus if he's wrong about the doctrine of inspiration? That's a good question. So, let's go ahead and move on to the second point in our outline. The inspiration of Scripture we've examined Jesus believed it, and we as Christians who share his worldview have no problem believing it as well. And then, the first point here, I want to make it clear that throughout these three verses, Jesus is not denying the truth that was taught that the Christ is the son of David. How do we know that that's not what Jesus is doing here? 
because Jesus doesn't answer the question, he kind of leaves it open. And there's been a variety of interpretations. And some people have thought that, yes, that is what Jesus is doing here. He's denying that the Messiah is going to be a physical descendant of David. But we know that's not what he's doing here because we have his words and the words of the apostles and the words in the Gospels that demonstrate that this is true, that the Messiah is the son of David. For example, in this very Gospel itself, just a couple of chapters earlier, as we studied a few weeks ago, that as the blind man was by the side of the road and he heard the commotion, he began to cry out when he heard that Jesus was passing by and he said, Jesus... Son of David, have mercy on me. So this was probably the most common way to identify the Messiah without using the word Messiah, Christ, is to say he is the son of David. These were synonyms in the Jewish thinking and the Jewish mindset of the time. But you might say, well, that's just one guy saying that. But, but what about how Matthew introduces his gospel? Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the words of the apostle one who knew Jesus and who understood what he was teaching here and who in the Holy Spirit was inspired to write the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So yes, he is son of David, but he's not just the son of David. That's what Jesus is getting at with his question here. So let's look at point number three then. The Messiah is, in fact, David's Lord. You see that in verses 36 and 37. Look back at the text again. Quoting Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord, that's the word for the covenant name of God. Normally it's in small caps, so you've got the Lord, Yahweh, identifying the four letters that is his special covenant name, can be pronounced Jehovah or Yahweh. That one, the God of Israel, the Lord, said to my Lord. So, Yahweh, God, is speaking to David's Lord, which any fair reading within the biblical worldview is going to be identified as the Messiah, the promised king that is part of the Davidic covenant. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And Jesus' point just rests on that first part of the statement. David himself, in verse 37, calls him Lord. So here's the truth that Jesus is getting across. David calls him Lord. And that is the basis for his question, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? He repeats his question there at the end of verse 37. So how is he his son? What we have here is a riddle that Jesus Christ is proposing for the scribes, the Pharisees, and the people. Notice he says he's teaching in the temple, and the question is, how can the scribes say it? So the people have been taught by the scribes, they know what the scribal teaching is, and he's getting them to think outside the box. He doesn't answer the question, he just poses it and leaves it hanging for the Jewish people there in the temple to consider and to think about. A very effective teaching method. I think I could learn something from Christ. Stop giving everybody the answers, give them a question, and let them search for the truth. Very effective teaching method. Now he's posing this riddle because... He wants them to think, how do I harmonize the truth that Jesus is the son of David, that is true, but how do I harmonize that with the fact that he is David's Lord? And you might say, well, what's the problem there? How is that a difficulty of harmonization? Well, you've got to get into the Jewish mindset to be able to understand the enigma here, why it's difficult to bring these two truths together. You see, in the Jewish mindset, what came first was the best. Who was the greatest prophet? Easy, Moses. 
Who was the greatest of the patriarchs? Easy, Abraham. Who was the greatest of the kings? Easy, David. Whoever came first, that was the greatest. That was the one who was most preeminent, most honored, most glorious. And now, the Messiah does not come first. He's the son of David. Now, normally in human relations, the son is not greater than the father. The father has more honor, he's got more reputation, he's got more achievements, and the son is lesser than the father in social standing. You know, we have a similar type of thinking in our world today. You know, who cares about the second guy who hits 60 home runs? It's the first guy who hits 60 home runs, who breaks that barrier, who does something that's never been done before. He's the greatest. Who cares about the second guy who sails across the ocean over to America? It's the first guy who sails across the ocean. He's the one that has really done something. And so the people of Israel, they were looking forward to Messiah coming, but they didn't think of Messiah the way that you think of Messiah. You've got to go back into the first century Jewish mindset, which is not that different from the 21st century Jewish mindset. And what the Jews are looking for in their Messiah is the one who is going to restore the ancient glory of Israel. They look back on the kingdom of David. They look back on the kingdom of Solomon. And they say, that was the zenith. That was where Israel was the most prominent among the nations of the ancient Near East. That's where they were free and they weren't under the heel of the Greeks or the Romans or the Persians or any of the nations around them. And that the Messiah is going to bring us back to that freedom and that power and that glory that we had with David and Solomon. But Jesus is trying to get them to think. He's trying to crack open their mind and say, you know what? That kingdom, that glory that existed under David and Solomon... That's nothing compared to what God is going to do with Messiah. David might have come first, but he's not the greatest. David has a greater son. And how is it that the son could be greater than the father? Look at the question that is the title in the ESV for this short paragraph. Whose son is the Christ? That's an important question. And in fact, the ESV translators get that question from the parallel passage in Matthew 22. You could jot down Matthew 22, verse 42, where Jesus asked that question in this context. Mark doesn't record it, but it's part of this whole conversation. Jesus says, whose son is the Christ? And you know what the biblical answer is? Well, yes, he is the son of David, but he's also the son of God. Yes, he is the son of David, but he is also the Son of God. You remember how the Gospel of Mark begins? Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Mark's title for his Gospel, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Not the Son of David, the Son of God. And this was the explosive concept. This was the radical new idea that Jesus is introducing with this question that is going to get him killed. Turn with me to Mark chapter 14. We come to the arrest and the trial of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see him before the council. Pick it up there in Mark chapter 14, verse 53. They led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. 
And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest, in desperation here, he stands up in the midst and he asks Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, the Son of God? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? For Jesus to equate the Son of David with the Son of God was blasphemy in the minds of the Jewish people, the Jewish high priest. And this is why when Jesus has the floor in the temple and all of his enemies are silenced, his one question for the Jewish people is this. How is it that the scribes say that the Messiah is the Son of David? David himself, in the spirit, says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. How then is he his son? You see, Jesus Christ has just given the evidence to the people to be able to make the decision as to whether or not it is blasphemy for the Christ to claim to be the Son of the Blessed. And it is not, according to Scripture, blasphemy. Psalm 2 identifies the Messiah as the Son of God. Psalm 110 identifies the Messiah as David's Lord, which is an implicit statement of the deity of Jesus Christ. There's no way for the Messiah to be Lord of his ancestor unless he is the Son of God. This truth is what is brought out also in the beginning of Romans. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Now, Romans does not have a lot of Christology in it. It's mostly a book of soteriology. That is that Paul focuses the doctrine in Romans on how is it that we are saved. What is the response to the saving work of Christ that brings about justification and new birth? Well, Paul includes a statement on Christology in his introduction, which lays the groundwork then to be able to understand the gospel after that. If you don't know who Christ is, then the gospel doesn't really make sense. And so, in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which, notice he says, he promised beforehand, promised in places like Psalm 110, right? This is a, a key messianic promise about the one who would be king and priest, he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David. Yes, so he is a descendant from David according to the flesh. According to the flesh, he's a descendant of David and that's all the people of Israel were looking for. That's all that they were expecting was a descendant of David who would be a political deliverer. But, notice what Paul says in verse 4, he was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. The same thing that Peter preached 
in Acts chapter 2, which we had as our scripture reading. He is the son of David, but he's also the son of God. And how do you know he's the son of God? Because God raised him from the dead. His resurrection is the proof of his divine sonship. Now, come back with me to Mark chapter 12. Now, while you're turning to Mark chapter 12, I thought it would also be fun to point out the epistle of Barnabas. This is an early church writing that is not inspired, probably not by the Barnabas that we know in the New Testament. It's not a great book. It's not my favorite. But it does have a reference here to Psalm 110 that makes the connection between Jesus' teaching on Psalm 110 verse 1 and the doctrine of the divine sonship of Jesus Christ. And so in chapter 12 verse 10 of the epistle of Barnabas, it says, Behold again, it is Jesus, not as a son of man, but the son of God. And he was revealed in the flesh in a figure. I don't really like the way that he states that. Since then, men will say that Christ is the son of David. David himself prophesied, being afraid and understanding the error of sinners. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I set thine enemies for a footstool under thy feet. So if I'm interpreting Barnabas or whoever the author was properly, it seems like he's denying the Davidic sonship and that he's just emphasizing the the divine sonship. But notice the connection between Psalm 110 and divine sonship. One doesn't have to cancel the other. They are both true. He is son of David, and he is son of God. All right, so we saw the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture in the words of Jesus here in Mark chapter 12, and many other places as well. We saw that Messiah is the son of David, but he is much more than the son of David. He is the son of God, which is necessary by consequence. This is what Jesus wanted the people to figure out for themselves when he pointed out that the Messiah is David's Lord. And so now we'll take a look at the response of the hearers there in verse 37. The great throng heard him gladly. And I'd like to make a distinction here between the apostles who are part of this great throng, the disciples, and the rest of the great throng that you might be calling the temporary fans of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has true followers and temporary fans. They all are enjoying listening to him. But that is not enough. The apostles learned this message well. Psalm 110 is used throughout the rest of the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 1. Really, the whole book of Hebrews is is pretty much an exposition of Psalm 110, both verse 1 and verse 4. The apostles get the message. And they repeat the message, and they go everywhere declaring that Jesus is the Son of God, based upon what Jesus is teaching here in the temple. They learn it well. The people, they love to listen, but many of them will not follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We see, throughout Scripture, there's a tendency to be a listener who does not follow through with genuine discipleship. And that's the warning that I want us to end with today as we think about the application of the message. The crowds, they are astonished at his teaching. They love listening to him, but that's not the same thing as salvation. And so as we come to the application, we think about, is there a sin to confess? Is there a promise to be believed? Is there an example to follow? A command to be obeyed? And what is the knowledge about God that we're supposed to have in mind? I want to highlight just one point of application for you. 
You see on the screen Mark chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. Jesus' parable about the sower. There are those who have the seed sown. The seed is the word of God on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. The great crowds hear him gladly. They love to listen to Jesus' teaching. But those who are on the rocky ground have no root in themselves. They endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Another example to be warned by is the example of Herod Antipas. Remember how Herod, in the Gospel of Mark, he feared John. He knew that John was a righteous and holy man, and he didn't want him to come to harm. And Herod would listen to John and would be greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. Hearing the word of God gladly is not the same thing as being saved. Herod was not saved. The rocky soil was not saved. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ taught. So here you are, you've heard the word of God. You've been entertained by the wit and the wisdom and the power of Jesus Christ's own words in the temple when he was with us. Don't stop there. Don't stop with listening. But do what the Lord Jesus Christ said. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter was giving this message to the crowds, their response was, Brothers, what should we do? Repent and believe the gospel. That's what we do in order to be saved. Would you bow your heads with me and join in a word of prayer? Father, I thank you for the privilege of proclaiming the deity of Jesus Christ. Yes, he is a human being descended from David, according to the flesh. But before he was a human being, he was the eternal word of God, the one who never changes. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, so that he is not just the son of David, but he is, in fact, your son, eternally generated by you, not a created being, but the one who is the perfect revealer of you the one who has existed with you, Father, from all eternity in perfect fellowship of love. And we thank you that he took on flesh and became a man so that he could go to the cross and pay for the sins of humanity so that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, repenting of faith and being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We give you thanks for the privilege of proclaiming this message. And Lord, we ask that your grace would be continually at work among us and our families and our community so that we would not just be hearers of this truth, but that we would do what the truth commands us to do. Amen.